Thank you, Celestial Bells. Well, welcome to First Baptist Church, Sun City West. We have begun our time of worship and celebration from a beautiful organ piece as we think about uh, Martin Luther and our handbell choir, and now are engaging together in our time of worship as we lift up our voices in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to him and him only. If this is the very first time that you have been here, we'd love for you to take a guest card in the pew in front of you and fill it out in its entirety. Then as you leave today, if you'll just drop it in one of the offering boxes at one of the exits, we would appreciate it. What we really want right now, we want you to be mindful, to focus upon God speaking to you today. And as you do that, with all the different things going on in your individual life that only God knows, I promise you, he'll speak to you. He'll speak words of wisdom, encouragement, and inspiration. Join me, if you would, in prayer. Father, thank you for the time and the opportunity that we have to come together. On this day that we celebrate, we celebrate you. And Father, we've come for no other reason than to worship you. And as followers of you through your Son, Jesus Christ, we have amazing opportunities to fellowship together, to sing songs, to be joyful, to build relationships, to learn and to grow and to mature. And Father, today I pray that we'll do that. And we'll do it in many different ways, but specifically this morning that we'll hear what you have to say. And Father, we will experience the power of your Spirit and the presence of Christ in this place. And then we will go away changed because of a response that we have made from your calling. And so as we sing these songs of the faith and hear your word, God, today, speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Jesus, you're my firm foundation. I know I can stand secure. Would you stand as we sing together?
lifting it. Oh, Father God, what a beautiful day you provided for us. You are so magnificent. You are always there. You're holy, you're faithful. Father, we are gathered here today, humble, to worship you. And to thank you, Lord, for all that you are and all that you do. For your involvement in every aspect of our lives. Guiding us, directing us. Keeping us on your path. Lord, we just can't thank you enough. And our hearts overflow with graciousness, with your graciousness. Father, I just ask for your blessings on those that are suffering today. Um, so much suffering in the world, Lord, not only physical, but spiritually and mental, emotionally, Lord, because we just, we are in so need of you. We are a needy nation, Lord. We have, you have blessed us beyond measure, and yet we have turned our back on you. I just pray for our land, Lord. I ask that you be with your, your the elections coming up, and that we each search our hearts and look at the candidates carefully, Lord. Those that are obedient to you, that have your values, your character, that those should be the ones elected, Lord. Perhaps our country would return to you. Father, I ask that you just be with the services today, that your Holy Spirit will just fill this place we will all just feel and experience you. Thank the Lord for today as we celebrate our pastor and for him and his wife being here. What a wonderful blessing in our world. They have led us, supported us, and followed you, Lord. We are so grateful for that. I just ask that you go with us now. Bless this, this service. We thank you again for all that you are and all you do. In Jesus' holy name. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Let's sing.
Well, I sure love our choir. I love our instrumentalist, Celestial Bells, Men's Ensemble, Ladies, Women of Grace. Our tech team, every one of them do a tremendous job. And uh, there's so much work that goes on behind the scenes to prepare for a time like today. And we, we appreciate that so very much. And it wouldn't happen if we didn't have a, a leader to accomplish that. And so thank you very much. Last weekend was a uh, tremendous weekend for so many of us. It was challenging. We learned a lot. Um, we had to think more deeply. We had to consider our own sufferings, the evil that we see in the world, and compare that with a good God. And how does that all work out in our lives? And yet, Dr. Lemke, in a very clear and very effective way, was able to guide us on Friday night and Saturday and Sunday to deal with and look at not only the problems surrounding suffering and evil, but also the different perspectives, solutions, if you will, to help us when we address those face-to-face. And then just such an inspiring message on Sunday morning uh, when bad things happen to good people. I hope if you were not able to be here, I hope that if you um, have the opportunity, you'll go on our website and you'll take the opportunity to view all of those sessions. They should all be there. And uh, take the time to do that because it will enrich your lives. We are back on track today with our Biblical Worldview series. This is the fourth of a series of five sessions or sermons dealing with uh, the key elements of what a Biblical Worldview is and how it affects our life. The key elements of what we must believe in order to actually take on a Biblical perspective. And today, we focus on Jesus Christ, all human and all divine. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do you know who he's talking about? Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we, yet he did not sin. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity that you've given us today to worship, to experience you already. And now as we look at your word, Father, I pray you will continue to give us insight. Help us not to see just words on a page, but help us to take your word to heart. That it would speak to our mind, to our will, to our spirit. 
And it would speak deeply through the power of your spirit. And Father, through that, and through him, that you would be able to help us understand so that we might be passionate about our relationship with Jesus Christ enough to share him wherever we go. It's in his name we pray. Amen. On Monday, I uh, met with an appliance tech, came out to our house, had a washing machine that wasn't working the way that it should be working, and uh, we'd already had one gentleman come out a couple of weeks before. The parts came in, and so this gentleman was working on, on our washing machine. So I began to talk with him, and uh, as I normally do with uh, people that come around, and they're kind of captive audience because I'm paying them to do things. <laughs> um, I started talking to him about his religious beliefs. And he was adamant, a guy about 25 years old, he said, I am Jewish. I said, oh, that's good, that's good. And so we began to talk more about it, and uh, I said, you know, I, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he looked at me and adamantly said, well, we do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I said, okay, okay. And he said, uh, in fact, I don't know if you've heard it or not, but I have actually, of a branch of Judaism, embracing the Kabbalah. He said, do you know what the Kabbalah is? And I said, well, I have some knowledge of it, not a lot, but I have some knowledge of it. He said, I, I believe, and we believe, that Jesus was not the only one who turned the water into wine, wasn't the only one who walked on the water. He said, there, there have been many who have done that, because as we understand in the Kabbalah, which is the, the Judaistic mysticism, the secrets, they're called, from the beginnings of time, kind of resurfaced in the Middle Ages, that there were many who did that. He just had that understanding of the Kabbalah, and he was able to do those things. And so we talked a little longer, and I could tell he was emphatic. He was not going to be moved. And my comment was, well, I hope that you're at peace with that, because I'm only at peace with knowing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and is my Savior. I think about his, his response, which he has every right to believe. But it is such contrast to what, in a biblical worldview, a Christian must have. John R. W. Scott, uh, Stott, who was in 1985 uh, considered one of the 100 most influential men in the world, stated this, Essentially, Christianity is Christ. The person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he was, and if he did not do what he had come to do, the foundation is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity, and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Billy Graham said, there is no Christianity without Christ. It all centers on him. So, what we believe about Jesus Christ is critical. And for we as believers in Jesus Christ, it is critical we know why. We come to the, the deeper understanding of who Christ was. 
not just accept it with our mind and even our heart, but understand it to the very best that we possibly can. It's important when we have a biblical worldview to understand the literal existence of Jesus Christ. We believe that the fullness of God came and lived in the human body of Jesus Christ of Nazareth some 2,000 years ago. That's what Paul said in the book of Colossians. There's evidence outside the New Testament that Jesus existed. It's not just a myth somewhere. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius both wrote about Jesus. And Josephus, a Jewish historian who was not a Christian, gave us further proof in two of his books, The Antiquities of the Jews and the Jewish Wars. <coughs> so there is evidence that Jesus existed outside of the New Testament. And there's also an abundance of evidence that is inside the New Testament. The late Professor F.F. F. Bruce, who was the professor of biblical criticism and exegesis at Manchester University, um, written many books over the years before his death. In his book, Are the New Testament Documents Reliable?, he goes through and he talks about how trustworthy and how accurate the New Testament is compared to the other historical works at that time before and after. You say, Pastor, well, I know that. I believe that. I believe Jesus really existed. But I want you to understand how you could stand on this platform of understanding and have a conversation with somebody about this. You need to know it well. So let's talk about the work of Christ in the Incarnation. Because we know from outside sources that he existed. We know from what the Scripture says in the New Testament that he existed. We know from the Old Testament it was prophesied that he would be coming. The event of his coming, which we celebrate at Christmas time every year, the Incarnation, is an amazing truth. Incarnation comes from the Latin word flesh. Hence, we get our word for Jesus coming in the flesh or in human form. It was not the triune God, but the second person of the Trinity that came to earth as human. That is probably why the Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Logos, speaking specifically about Jesus, and it didn't say God became flesh. The Bible clarifies that it was not the triune God, but the Son who came. Even though that's true, the Father, God the Father, was involved in the incarnation. We see that in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, plus the other references that you'll see on your screen. But Paul said, but when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full right of sons. So it was the second person of the Trinity who came to be in the human form. But God the Father was engaged and involved and sent him. In addition, the Holy Spirit was equally involved. You go back to Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1, you find his involvement in Jesus coming in human form. We look at Jesus, we find that he was fully human. He had a human body. And sometimes the Bible said he even got tired. 
You see that from the time that he spent at the well in Samaria. The scripture very clearly says that he stayed at the well, the disciples were sent into town to get food because he was tired. Hmm. He was hungry. You remember when he went through his temptations after 40 days, the Bible says he was hungry. And Satan what tempted him again, telling him what he could do. <laughs> we also find that he was thirsty. And so Jesus, the Son of God, came in human form, had the characteristics of a human, a body, being tired, being hungry, being thirsty. We also find that he had human emotions. He became angry. Anybody here ever become angry before? It's a human emotion. <coughs> For Jesus, it was righteous indignation as he saw his father's house being turned into a money changer's area. That was not something that honored God. We also see in Mark chapter 10 that he loved. The rich young ruler came to him and said, Master, what, what should I do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, keep all of the commandments. And he said, well, I've done that from my childhood up. What else? And Jesus said, knowing that he was a rich man, said, well, go and, and give all of your wealth and come follow me. And the rich young ruler, if you remember, was saddened and turned and walked away. And the Bible says that Jesus loved him in Mark 10, 21. Jesus was saddened. So he could love as a human. And he also felt sadness. You remember when his friend Lazarus died? Jesus came, and of course Lazarus' sister said, listen, if you had just been here. Well, Jesus knew the Bible says that he was sad, saddened by loss. So he had human form. He had the, the, the human functions of, of knowing when he was hungry and, and thirsty and tired. He could be angry in a righteous way. He loved. He was sad. He also had human experiences. The scripture says that he was tempted. You remember Satan tempted him for 40 days. He learned how to do things. At age 12, he was, he was with his parents, and his parents were heading back home, and, and he stayed at the temple, and they didn't know where he was. You might remember that. He, they were scared to death. I would be scared to death if I was a parent. I lost my kid that way. They couldn't find him, the Bible says. And when they finally found him, he was having a discussion with the religious leaders in the temple of that day. Some of the smartest people, he was discussing things. I really wish the Bible had clarified that a little bit more, trying to see who was teaching who. <laughs> we find that he was a worker. In Mark 6, 3, they questioned, isn't this... Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, he had taken on what we anticipate his father's profession. He knew how to work with his hands. Sometimes you see paintings of Jesus say he was just, you know, the soft-skinned, you know, slender young man. And the reality is that I'm sure his hands were hard 
working with wood. It also took a muscular man to do the kinds of things that a carpenter would do in those days. He worked. He also found that he obeyed his parents. When his parents found him, in verse 51 of, of, Mark, of Luke chapter 2, uh, we find that uh, the scripture says that when they got back home, that he obeyed his parents from that point on. And he grew in stature. He experienced joy. He experienced bereavement. He experienced new life. Jesus shared our humanity. He literally existed here. And he went through everything that we went through. Or that we go through. So what was the reason for the incarnation? It was human sin. It was our disobedience. Christ did not take the human form just to come and visit us for a while and then head back home. The Bible was very clear. He took on human form to die for human sin so that men and women might forever be with him. Otherwise, they would be eternally separated. It all hinged on him. The familiar verse tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why he came. There was no other reason to leave the glories of heaven. He created everything. Why leave? Because he loves you. And he loves me. He came to take care of business. The business of our souls that we ourselves had chosen to walk away. And so he came, literally, in human form, the incarnation. We also find that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ plays a huge role. Indispensable. Jesus Christ's birth was the result of the miraculous conception as the Virgin Mary conceived a baby in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit without a human father. Now that's a miracle. The scripture is very clear on that. He was born of a woman which demonstrates that he was indeed human and became one of us. The writer the Apostle Paul of Philippians chapter 2 describes him in a wonderful way. Being the very nature God, he, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant by being made in human likeness. Paul describes him. He came. Born of woman. And that he was born of a virgin with no human father, demonstrates that he is the only begotten of the Father. In 1 John 4, 9, the, John tells us, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. We didn't live any other way, but we lived through him. And God showed his love in that way. And God sent his one and only. It demonstrates that God loves us. And this was the vehicle to bring about that olive branch of salvation for each one of us. That he was born of a virgin with no human father also demonstrates that he was born with no sin nature in the same way that Adam was created sinless. 
Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, give us a clear understanding of that. So my question is, does, God, does the Bible teach that Jesus Christ was human or a phantom, this, this kind of mystical ghost that could come and go as he wanted to? Well, Jesus called himself a man, and he's called a man by many others. In Romans chapter 5, verse 15, the scripture says, but the gift of God but the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Very clearly, he was called a man. The most common self-designation of Jesus was the Son of Man. It indicates his humanity. In the midst of that humanity was his sinlessness. Jesus was subject to ordinary laws. He was subject to human development. He was subject to human wants and sufferings. The scripture is clear on that as well. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 10 and, 11, uh, 10 and 18 says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Referring specifically to Jesus. And he continued in verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, he's saying, when you face that temptation, when, when you have a decision to make, when you have the opportunity to go errant in your, in your path of life, when you have the opportunity to steal, to say something to the negative of someone, to have wrongful thoughts, and the list goes on and on, the scripture says that he is able to help those who are is being tempted because he himself was tempted. He can empathize with us is what the, the writer of Hebrews said. We think about his literal existence. We think about his virgin birth, what it says, what God was communicating to us, and he was communicating his love. But that wasn't, that wasn't the entirety of it. We move now to the sinless life of Jesus, which is absolutely critical for us. Because how could someone die for us in our sin if they were sinners? It would take no effect. So we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, the writer of Hebrews says. Because Jesus Christ was human, did he ever sin? The answer resoundingly is no. He was without sin, the writer of Hebrews says. You see all the other the other scriptures on the screen that I don't have time to go through, but you need to go through and read those because it is foundational. Don't just accept, well, that's what I've been taught all of these years. Find out what the scripture says about his sinlessness because it will so make you passionate about, man, I, I don't want to sin. To him to go through everything he had to go through, I want to do everything I can to follow him. His sinlessness makes all all the difference. You see, Jesus Christ perfectly revealed God as holiness, as righteousness, 
as truth and as love. That's how he represented and revealed God. He did the will of the Father always, and that also was included in his sinlessness. And only God can be sinless. Jesus challenged his enemies in John chapter 8, verse 46, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He's laid it out there. Can anyone here prove that I'm guilty of sin? And how many people raised their hand? Nobody. Peter testified in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. <coughs> to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here Jesus lived in a flesh and blood body, in a corrupt, fallen world. He could completely identify himself with man apart from sin. He knows the road that you're walking. He knows the path and the challenges that face each one of you. They are not unique to you. He knows them. And he knows you. You are not just part of this mass of people. He knows you intimately. And so when you face the challenging times of life, he's there to take your hand. And he's there to walk you through those times. Maybe not walk around them, but help you walk through them. In all points, he was tempted just like we, but without sin. As one writer said, not one error or sin of his is to be found in the trophy hall of Satan. Even his enemies can find no fault in him. In fact, someone pointed out that Jesus' perfect life in a corrupt world was as much a miracle in the moral sphere as his virgin birth was in the physical sphere. Because of his perfect life, Jesus was qualified. And that's very important. It's a very important word. In order for somebody to be able to get into the most elite of the elites, in the Olympics, you have to qualify. Otherwise, you can't do it. Jesus is the only one who is qualified to save men and women from their sins. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of, of eternal salvation for all who obey him. 
He went through his entirety of life, even as brief as it was, dealing with all of the temptations, with all of his critics, with all of those that disdained him. And he was perfect. And going through all of that, he qualified so that he himself became the source of eternal salvation for you. No one else could do that. Only he. And so we come to this place that we understand that salvation that he offers comes to us by nothing we can do ourselves, which is yet another one of the biblical keys to a worldview that honors Christ. And that is that salvation is by grace alone. You have to understand that it is by grace alone, the salvation, and you don't work to keep your salvation. Once you are saved, you have the eternal security of the believer. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So no matter how hard we work, and, and I'm among a people here who have strong worth ethics and have had them all through the course of your life, the way that you survived many difficult times was because you worked through it. But salvation is not one of those. And we have to move outside of that work ethic and say it's all by grace. It's salvation by grace. It's not merited by me. You see, as Paul said, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared for us in advance. It comes from grace. It comes from Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, the, the, the verse 12, says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So, to summarize, here we find that Jesus the second person of the Trinity, left the glories of heaven and came here in human form to tabernacle, to live with us. Not just to do a high five and bump shoulders. Not just to visit. But he came to accomplish the task. He was tempted in all ways as a human like we were. He had human emotions and human development, human characteristics. And so what he faced here were the challenges that not many, not any of us here faced. And yet he got through them all. And being perfected, as the writer said, he was able to provide salvation for all of us, whoever would choose to obey him, the scripture says. His literal existence, his virgin birth, his sinless life, that salvation is by grace alone, we can't earn it. We owe everything to Jesus. 
That's why if you take Christ out of Christianity, you got nothing. You got an empty religion. And I promise you, there are churches dying across this nation, across Europe, that are beautiful cathedrals, but Christ is not there. And it's just a dead religion. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And my friends, that takes us to yet one more key biblical understanding for a biblical worldview. And that is the personal responsibility that we have to share that news with everybody. We believe that mankind chose to rebel against God in the Garden of Eden because of that rebellion, sin, and death entered the world. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. The writer of Romans tells us that. Paul said, all have sinned. That's a dire indictment against humanity. There's no way out. Every man and every woman, they're cornered. You're not going to get out of this world not only alive, but also not in a relationship with the Almighty God. You're going to be separated forever. If it hadn't been for Jesus, is that computing? I'm just wondering because I'm not hearing too many amens. He's the only way. And I don't know, somehow, we get into this, we get into this rut of our Christian life. It says this is just what we do. We come to church on a Sunday morning or we get involved during the week and, and we, just, we know we have Jesus and so we're just marking ourselves down the way to the time that we'll see Him in glory. When God says, that's not why I left you here. Be excited about what Jesus has done for you. Understand the transformation. See it differently. Just don't let it become taken for granted. Old hat. Oh yeah, I got Jesus. I'm fine. That's not it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. So it's not just about our relationship with Jesus. We have to be passionate about it. And we have to take on an understanding that the last thing that Jesus, who if he hadn't come, you would be spending eternity separated from God in a place called hell. But because he came, and saved you because you said, I want him as my Savior, he says, now, I want you to share that everywhere you go. Don't wait. Don't delay. Anybody that you see, you talk to them. Because it says, go and make disciples. And so that's our responsibility. Every one of us, it's not just the preacher's responsibility, it's everybody's responsibility. And every one of us is going to have to stand before God and say, well, 
God, you know what? It just wasn't my deal. I can't talk very well to people. That's no excuse. Somehow you've got to figure it out. And with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, He will help you. In fact, Luke tells us He will give you the words to say at the right time. Might be a conversation around a washing machine. Just asking somebody about their religious, religious beliefs. Sometimes you make headway, sometimes you don't, but you plant a seed. C.S. Lewis wrote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he was a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And Lewis said, you must make your choice. Either the man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. And so the decision this morning is yours. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who came for you? Do you have that? John Stott, that I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the service, he grew up in a, uh, in a church in, uh, in, in, in England. And he went through, he was baptized as an infant. He went through and, and uh, to the age 12, uh, to the uh, to the time of the the catechism or or uh, um, however that particular church did their their salvation process when he says okay you're a Christian now and he said I went through my early life very devout I worked hard I did everything I could to to follow what Jesus said and then he came in contact with with an evangelist who he heard speak and speak about Jesus and how personal Jesus wants to be in your life. And all of a sudden he realized it wasn't through that cold ritual. It, it is something more dynamic. It is something of Christ coming into our life and transforming us. And so I just want to make sure that we aren't going through just the cold rituals. of I've been in church all my life. I grew up in church. I was a Baptist before I was born. Well... So was I. But there had to come a time when you gave your life to Jesus. There had to be this personal understanding that I've sinned, I've disobeyed God. Jesus is, is sinless. He's God. He can change my life because of his death, burial, and resurrection. And you ask him to come into your life. And he transforms it. And that makes you passionate. And I hope and pray that today if you haven't done that, that you'll give your life to Christ. And I pray that if you are a believer in Christ, man, you'll be on fire. You'll be excited no matter how many aches and pains you have. We talked about that in our early morning prayer meeting this morning. Man, everybody there, we all got pains, aches and pains. Man, we got Jesus. And through the aches and pains, and we can relate to other people and their aches and pains, and we can share that Jesus is the one that gets us through that. So this morning in our invitation time, I'm asking you and I'm begging you. Make sure you have your relationship with Christ. Secondly, make sure you're passionate about it. And you accomplish what God has called you to do.
And that's to have a biblical worldview. And that's to share Christ everywhere and to grow. Father, as we go into our invitation, I pray, I ask you, make us passionate about Jesus. No matter how difficult our lives are. Because there's a lot of hurt and pain right here in this worship center. And those watching online. But Jesus can help us through those. And most importantly, he can put our perspectives right. Because this world is quickly coming to an end, but eternity is before us, and it never ends. So help us not grow weary in the work of love. Help us not grow weary in the work of the kingdom, in the work to which Christ had prepared us to do in advance. This morning, help us to make the decisions that would put us right on track where you want us to be, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and let's sing our invitation seated if you would. And uh, I want to affirm, I think Gail, in your prayer time, our deacon prayer time, concerning uh, praying, uh, voting. Um, you know I don't advocate it, uh, how to vote. I do advocate that it is a stewardship that we have. So make sure you do your research. Make sure you study hard all the candidates, all the propositions we have before us. You look at that along with the scriptural, the biblical worldview, what we've been talking about, mesh those together. You say it's what God wants you to do, but do it, okay? Be the salt and the light as believers in Christ as we look toward that day. There are a number of things in our bulletin that I would call your attention to. There are sign-up sheets in both lobbies. You'll note those. Especially one that I want to draw your attention to is our Thanksgiving Missions Awareness Banquet. That will be on Wednesday, November the 16th at 5 Tickets were on sale last week, and they are again this Sunday. So if you haven't purchased yours, you may do so after the worship in the small lobby. Next Sunday, we will be honoring our veterans, and it will be done in a way that is easier for our veterans not to have to stand up so long as we've done in the past. But if you are a veteran, we hope that you will plan to be here next Sunday as we honor you. We will also be observing the Lord's Supper. In both lobbies, you saw a stack of Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes this morning. 
you may take those in either the small or the main lobbies. You'll note when they are due back. If you are one that would like to participate in that vital ministry project, you may not be able to go and purchase those items that are asked for. So you can write a check payable to the church and mark on the envelope that is for Operation Christmas Child and you can participate that way with someone else doing the shopping for you. At the bottom of, in the inside of our bulletin, you'll see on Sunday evening, November the 20th, we will have Denver and the Mile High Orchestra in concert. Denver is the leader. He will be here by himself for our Thanksgiving Missions Awareness Banquet, and then he will bring his whole orchestra to be with us on November 20th at 4 o'clock. I invite you to watch a brief video now, and then our deacon chairperson, Bill Swain, has a presentation. It is our pleasure today to honor Dr. Kennedy as part of Pastor Appreciation Sunday. We are blessed to have you, your leadership and guidance through the chaotic times we've experienced with the pandemic. Those days since have been exciting, exhausting, enervating, and energizing. We can now see a future filled with promise and hope and a continued reminder in you, Dr. Kennedy, that we must fulfill our responsibility to continually witness and work to bring people to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Little did we know that when we gave you the God is my guide compass several years ago, that you would embrace and follow its truth to guide us 
to this place today. You and Debbie are a blessing and a gift. And you both hold a special place in our hearts. We have a few gifts for the two of you, plus a treasure chest of cards and wishes from the congregation. At this time, I'd like for all the deacons to if Dr. As Dr. Scott Williamson comes to lead us in our closing prayer, I invite you to stand, and I encourage you to take the time to personally express your appreciation to Dr. Kennedy and Debbie. So, Dr. Kennedy, it is good to have you here as a former pastor. I appreciate the work that you do for our church, and as I watch that video, 
it is very true when it's said so much is done behind the scenes that uh, no one ever sees. I had a church member tell me one time, Pastor, for most of the people, if you show up on Sunday and preach, they're happy. But so much else goes on other than that. And so what I would like you to do as a congregation, since it's very hard to gather down here, I would just like you to put your hands out towards Dr. Kennedy and Debbie in a form of blessing as uh, we pray for our pastor as we close. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for bringing Kirby and Debbie here to us. From across the United States of Florida, they moved to Arizona, a little drier, a little less wet, a little less green. And yet they came by faith that they could help our church to be what you have called it to be. And they certainly have done that. We thank you for Dr. Kennedy's heart for the lost. We thank you for his heart for the church to grow and to penetrate into the community and have an effect upon the community. We thank you for his heart to preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his heart, for the truth of Jesus. We also thank you for his heart, for his wife, for his children, and now for grandchildren. And we have got to share with them in their joy over becoming grandparents. May that joy continue. May we continue to have the blessing of their presence for years to come. And Father, as we close this service, we pray that you help us each day, that when we pray, we shall never forget to pray for our pastor and for our pastor's wife. May you keep Satan from them. May you bind him so that he may not cause any problems with our pastor that we have seen happen to other pastors. Keep him pure. Keep him serving you. Keep him doing that which is right. And we thank you again for who he is for who Debbie is, and for their characters as good Christians. And we pray this to the Lord's name, into Christ's glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.